Welcome to Module 7 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forces. In the last module, we started our march through the minutiae of Canadian administrative law. I propose to you seven steps to administrative law wisdom as an excellent way to address a, a novel administrative law problem. These questions drive you through a useful diagnostic. And in Module 6, we focused first on the three-question approach to the exercise of delegated power. First, who is the delegate? Look at the statute, identify the delegates, make sure there has not been an improper sub-delegation of power. Question 2, what is the nature of the power delegated? Is it an administrative power in the purest sense that gives the delegate very little choice? The delegate must issue, for example, a license if certain conditions are met, or is it a discretionary decision that gives the delegate a lot of choice? And how broad is that discretion? Is it fettered by conditions or is it unfettered? And the third question, how is the power to be exercised? What procedural standards on the exercise of power are set out in the Delegating Act itself? What substantive standards on the exercise of power are set out in that act, that concept of fetters, for instance? What procedural standard on the exercise of power exists in the Constitution or in other statutes, like at the Ontario level, the Statutory Powers Procedures Act, or at the federal level, the Canadian Bill of Rights of 1960? What procedural standards on the exercise of the power exist at common law, and what substantive standards on the exercise of that power exist at common law? Those are your three questions about how it is that power is to be exercised by a delegated decision maker. We will be examining details, and especially details, on those constitutional and common law sources of procedural and substantive limitations. But before we get into those details, in this module, we need to focus on the four-question approach to the control of the exercise of delegated power. These four questions are really about what you do when you conclude that the power has not been exercised properly by the delegate. It is often about judicial review, although, as I mentioned in Module 6, there can also be intermediate administrative levels of appeal from an initial decision, a so-called statutory right of appeal that's procedurally different from judicial review proceedings. And so we're going to deal with these four questions in this module. Those questions are, first, who exercises the control? Second, what procedure must be followed in seeking to control the exercise of delegated power? Third, on what grounds is control exercised? And last, what relief or remedies can be granted? So let's drill down and look at that first question. Who exercises the control? Who exercises control specifically over the delegate, the administrative decision maker? Well, what's the first place you look? I pause dramatically. The statute that delegates the power. That statute may, for example, create its own appeal route. For example, it may provide that an appeal is available from the decision maker to some other administrative agency, or it may create an appeal right directly to the courts themselves. Where a statute does create an appeal route, this is known as a statutory right of appeal, or simply a statutory appeal. It's sometimes also called an administrative remedy. There is a general principle of administrative law, which we'll come back to, that where the statute provides for an appeal or a review, in other words, where there's a statutory right of appeal, that procedure, that statutory right of appeal, must be followed before you can resort to what's known as judicial review. Now remember, I've introduced you to the concept of judicial review. That judicial review is an inherent power of courts. 
the inherent power that courts have to scrutinize the exercise of delegated power. Judicial review exists even if it isn't referred to in the delegating statute. So the general rule is that where the statute provides for an appeal, you must exhaust that statutory right of appeal before you can resort to what's known as judicial review. Now, as we'll see, this rule is not applied 100% of the time, but it is a general principle of administrative law and you ignore it at your peril. Okay, so let's say that you've now looked at the statute and there is no statutory right of appeal or alternatively, you've exhausted that administrative remedy. There's nothing left. What do you do then? Well, judicial review. At the provincial level, if you're reviewing the provincial executive, say the Ontario government, your recourse is to the Superior Court of the province. In the Ontario case, the Superior Court of Justice, the Section 96 Court in the province of Ontario. And specifically in Ontario, which branch of the Superior Court of Justice deals with judicial review? Well, a body known as the Divisional Court. And that Divisional Court has jurisdiction to perform judicial review over the Ontario Executive by virtue of a statute, a provincial statute in Ontario, known as the Judicial Review Procedures Act, an act which you'll see in operation in one of the practical modules of this course. What about at the federal level, if that issue is the conduct of the federal executive? Well, the federal parliament, using its powers to do so under Section 101 of the Constitution Act of 1867, has enacted the Federal Courts Act, which creates the federal courts. And the federal courts, amongst other things, have the judicial review function in relation to federal delegates. And because of the nature of our case studies in this course, we'll be focusing specifically on the Federal Courts Act and the role of the federal courts in performing administrative law, judicial review. It is the better part of their function, and they are by far the busiest administrative law courts in the country. And so it's worth a deep dive into the functions and operations of the federal courts in future modules. Now, Based on this discussion alone, it should be clear to you that it matters which court you're in. If you are reviewing the provincial executive, please do not go to the federal court. If you are reviewing the federal executive, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, 99% of the time, you will be in federal court. And so do not conflate the jurisdiction of these two courts and apply to them in reviewing the wrong executive. So let's move on to the next question in our four-question approach. Number two, what procedure must be followed in seeking to control the exercise of delegated power? Well, if it's a statutory right of appeal, where do you look? Pause dramatically. You look to the statute that creates that right of appeal and possibly whatever regulations exist governing the procedure by which that appeal is mounted. But what if you're not talking about a statutory right of appeal, but instead about this inherent concept of judicial review? Well, the procedure for judicial review depends on whether we're talking again about the provincial or federal levels. At the provincial level, well, the process to be followed is governed by provincial statutes, provincial rules of court. And in Ontario, those rules are set out in some large measure in a statute known as the Judicial Review Procedures Act and also accompanying rules in the Ontario Rules of Civil Procedure. At the federal level, the procedure to be followed is found in the Federal Courts Act and also in the separate and related federal courts rules. We will be examining that act and some of those rules in detail going forward. Question number three of our four-question approach. 
on what grounds is control exercised. More specifically, what sort of errors would prompt a court to intervene on judicial review and control the exercise of delegated power? Well, the answer to that question, again, may depend. It may depend on whether we're talking about an administrative right of appeal under a statute or, again, the inherent concept of judicial review. You can note the pattern here. What if there's an administrative right of appeal? In other words, what if the statute does include a right of appeal? Well, the grounds on which the appellate body can exercise control will be set out in the statute itself, generally speaking. It's about the statute. Again, read that statute. And so where there's an internal appeal, a statutory right of appeal, an administrative remedy set out in the statute, look to the grounds set out in that same statute, the justifications that allow the appellate body to step in and disturb the decision of the original administrative decision maker. The statute will generally, if not always, specify. What about judicial review? Well, judicial review, as we know, refers to those circumstances where the courts control the exercise of delegated power independently of any statutory authorization to do so. That doesn't mean you should be inattentive to the statutes which describe how it is that courts will conduct judicial review. And so, yes, do read the Judicial Review Procedures Act at the Ontario level. And yes, do read the Federal Courts Act at the federal level. However, there is a rich common law that embellishes references to grounds of review one finds in those statutes, and you should be attentive to those common law concepts of judicial review. And generally speaking, the grounds on which they can hold the delegate accountable stem from some of the same issues we've already spoken about in relation to our three-question approach. Let's talk about them again. First, limits imposed by the Constitution, like Section 7 of the Charter. Second, limits imposed by the statute delegating power uh, to the delegate themselves or other related statutes like the Statutory Powers Procedures Act. And third, limits imposed at common law. As we'll see going forward, the grounds that courts invoke in justifying an intervention on judicial review are tied to one or more of these different limitations on the exercise of power by the delegate. Now, it's packaged differently. I want to underscore that this list is not the same list you will find, say, in the Federal Courts Act, but it basically boils down to, if you were to characterize the grounds of review on judicial review, one of these three different classes. They are the justifications that motivate a court to intervene and disturb the decision of the underlying decision maker on judicial review. Now, going forward, we're going to have to drill down and really focus on these grounds for judicial review and how they work in practice. Okay, so that's the first three questions in our four-question approach to administrative law. There's one more question, and that's the question of relief, or put another way, remedies. What relief can the court order if it concludes that there has, in fact, been an error of a sort that justifies its intervention on one of the grounds we've mentioned in our conversation? Well, if you look at the statutory right of appeal, if it exists, you will find that the statute almost always will set out the remedies that are available should the reviewing body conclude that, in fact, there has been a reviewable error justifying intervention. And so look again to that statute. And what if we're talking about judicial review? Well, this is the $50 million question. If you get to the court on judicial review, what do you get? What are the possible remedies? Well, you can look at instruments like the Federal Courts Act, which do provide some census to the remedies available, but those remedies in turn are built upon more antiquated common law constructs about remedies that can be issued by a court on judicial review. And basically, these remedies can be divided into two broad categories. First, the so-called prerogative writs, and second, 
what are known as ordinary remedies. And so let's start with prerogative writs. There's something called certiorari, and this is an order from a court quashing or setting aside the decision of a delegate, expunging a decision from a delegate, and then sending the matter back to the delegate to be redetermined, presumably redetermined in a manner that avoids the error that the court concludes justify this sort of intervention. Second, there's something called prohibition. Prohibition is similar to certiorari, but here the remedy is sought even before the delegate renders a decision. A court order of prohibition basically prohibits the delegate from proceeding in a manner that exceeds the jurisdiction of the delegate, that steps outside the piece of the power pie or exceeds the scope of the bucket of powers that the delegate has. So when a delegate is about to take a specified action that's not authorized by a statute or otherwise by law, a court may prohibit that action. And this is a very drastic order that will really only be made where the court concludes the delegate really does truly lack authority to proceed. Mandamus is the third of the prerogative writs. Mandamus is an order from the court obliging the delegate to perform a statutory duty that the delegate is required to perform but has failed to do so. So unlike the first two prerogative writs, which were about stopping the delegate, this is about compelling the delegate to do something. And so if the delegate has a statutory duty to do something and they haven't done it, you can go to court on judicial review and seek an order of mandamus. Fourth, habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is an ancient remedy from the court compelling the executive to bring before the court someone who is detained to show that the detention is lawful. So it's quite narrow. It has to implicate someone who's detained. It's largely been superseded by other protections under other statutory regimes or under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And the last of our prerogative writs is something even more obscure called Quo Waranto. And Quo Waranto is a writ that requires a government official to come before the court and demonstrate by what authority they exercise the powers of a particular statutory office. Does that public official clearly and lawfully hold their office? And it's not really that important anymore because public office holders generally hold their office pursuant to a statutory regime, which makes it clear who it is that should be exercising a given power. And so it's much less common now to see qua waranto as a writ being sought before a court on judicial review. All right, let me move on then to the second class of remedies. These are the so-called ordinary remedies available on judicial review. There are two of these. The first is called a declaration or declaratory relief. Sometimes there's a dispute as to the meaning of a provision in a statute or some other piece of legislation. For example, what exactly are the powers of a delegate under that statute? So you may wish to go to court and ask the court to define the scope and powers of the delegate or the rights owed by the delegate to some party or something of this sort. In this instance, you would seek a remedy of declaration. The purpose of the declaration is to clarify the law on a particular point. Put another way, in my example, a declaration would be an order from the court declaring what rights and obligations arise from a piece of legislation. Now, a declaration from the court does not compel anyone to do anything or refrain from doing anything. It is, in other words, simply a declaration of the state of the law. However, a declaration of a court is traditionally respected. Why? Because were that declaration to be ignored and a delegate were to proceed in a manner inconsistent with it, it would be pretty easy to turn around to the court and say, you know this law that you interpreted this way, well, the delegate hasn't abided, and seek another order, perhaps certiorari. And then last, in terms of our remedies, there's the remedy of injunction. 
Now, there are various sorts of injunctions, many of which sound a bit like some of the other remedies we've been speaking about. And when we get to the conversation about remedies on judicial review, we'll talk about how it is that there's this coincidence and overlap in some of these remedies. The reasons are largely historic, but generally speaking, injunctions can be classed in two different ways. Effect and duration. And so in relation to effect, there are preventive injunctions, that is, an injunction stopping some sort of act. For example, the delegate may not deport someone. And there are also mandatory injunctions, injunctions requiring positive steps be taken to remedy a past wrong. And so, for example, a requirement that a government reopen a school, perhaps, that it has wrongfully closed. And then in terms of duration, there are so-called interlocutory injunctions, that is, injunctions that persist temporarily until such time as the substance of a dispute before the court is resolved. And these interlocutory injunctions are really designed to ensure that delays in the court process don't render the entire matter moot because during the intervening delay, there was an irreparable decision made by a decision maker that changed the circumstances on the ground. And then there are more permanent injunctions, uh, permanent orders, Let's stop a delegate from doing something. Now, permanent injunctions are relatively uncommon. So that's remedies in a nutshell. Notice I didn't list damages or compensation as a remedy available on judicial review of administrative action. As a general rule, damages are not among the remedies that can be awarded on an application for judicial review. Now, I want to underscore that. Damages are not among the remedies that can be awarded on an application for judicial review. Do not seek damages in an application for judicial review. It's not amongst the remedies that are available. That's not to say, though, that the very same acts by the delegate that are being challenged on judicial review don't also violate some other principle of law, say a tort principle at common law. And so take, for example, Ron Corelli versus Duplessis. Mr. Ron Corelli's interests were harmed by Mr. Duplessis' improper exercise of power. And so the very same acts that could have been challenged on the basis of administrative law principles via judicial review were in fact in Ron Corelli versus Duplessis challenged as an action in tort. And there is in fact this tort of abuse of public office or misfeasance of public office that was resuscitated by the Supreme Court in a 2003 case called Ohavji Estate versus Woodhouse. But that's a very different set of remedies than are available on judicial review. If you are seeking compensation for the misfeasance of public office, you proceed via tort, an action in the superior courts or in the federal court, you do not proceed by way of application for judicial review. These distinctions may not be clear right now, but as we proceed through the course, you'll appreciate that these procedural rules in terms of how you challenge decisions by the state matter enormously in terms of your prospects of success. So do not confuse the different role of judicial review versus damages sought via some sort of civil action. And so that ends our conversation about the four-question approach to the control of the exercise of delegated power. Again, first, who exercises the control? Second, what procedures must be followed in seeking to control the exercise of delegated power? Third, on what grounds is control exercised? And then last, what relief or remedies can be granted? We'll be seeing how this works more concretely through the course, but taken together, these four steps, along with the prior three steps we talked about in, in Module 6, constitute the seven steps to administrative law wisdom. They should give you some sense as to the big picture and get you asking the right questions in addressing any administrative law problem. This ends Module 7.